If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 12. Uh, today we finish out our series that we've called Live It, and it began with verse 1 of Romans chapter 12, where the Bible tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, that we are to be holy and acceptable to our God, and that this is our our spiritual act of worship. Now, the book of Romans, as you read the first 11 chapters, you find it's talking about what is the gospel and what has God done for us, who is he? And then as we get to chapter 12, it really begins to transition into, okay, because of the gospel, this is how it's to be lived out in your life. And so we've journeyed together through this chapter. We reached the last section today here in verse 16. By the way, next week, I'll begin a new series of messages called The Big Picture, in which we will look at many of the big moments in Scripture to help you understand the coherency from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, One of the most staggering realities of the Bible is just the unified theme that you see running through centuries and multiple authors. But today, let's finish out our section in Romans chapter 12, where the Bible reads, Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. You know, disagreements are a, a part of life. We, we all have disagreements. You have that coworker that doesn't work very hard and so you get in a disagreement or that coworker that has obnoxious habits. You have that cousin that every time your family gets together, uh, you find yourself in an argument with them because they vote for the wrong people. And you know the wrong people are the ones that you don't vote for. And so they bait you into a political discussion and the next thing you know you're in a disagreement, in an argument. You have that, that child that is convinced that they're smarter then their parents, you have that, that parent who treats you like a child and that you're 10 years old even though you're now 45. Uh, we all have disagreements in life. And, and here's what's interesting, how, how we deal with the adversity. Do we seize the opportunities in adversity or do we miss them? How we deal with, with disagreements in life will in many ways write the story of your life. If you respond to disagreements with arrogance and foolishness, then the bumps of life will knock you down and will keep you from reaching the heights that that your life could reach. And correspondingly, if you learn to respond with humility and wisdom, the bumps of life can be things that cause you to continue moving forward and can help you actually get to the summit of life. And so in this passage, and uh, this sermon's a little bit more mechanical than most of my sermons. In this passage, there's, there's ten scriptural principles that help us in dealing with relationships, help us in dealing with disagreements. I want to encourage you to take notes today, to, to write these ten things down on a piece of paper. If you take notes on your phone, uh, go ahead and, and just 
store them on your phone because I think somewhere along the line you'll, you'll come across a situation and you'll be like, I heard a sermon on this. I, I, know there's, I, I know that there's some stuff here that I need to remember and if you can go back and reference it, I think it can be a, a lot of help to you. Well, the first thing the scriptures teach us here is that when we find ourselves in disagreements, we need to look for the areas where you agree with one another. In verse 16, the Bible says, be in agreement with one another. Now, this passage is talking specifically to the church. Paul is writing to the church there in Rome. And in the New Testament, you find a lot of what I call the one another passages. The Bible tells us to encourage one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. And they all link back to when Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you should love one another. And then Jesus told us, uh, by, uh, people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so all these other one another passages in Scripture, they illustrate for us how, how we, we love each other. And the passage here says, as the church, we need to be in agreement with one another. Now, in church life, there are certain things that are just essential to our belief structure. In fact, I think later on we're going to sing the song, We Believe. Is that right, Paul? And and that song actually talks about some of the different things that are essential to our beliefs. Uh, Things like the nature of God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the Trinity, uh, Jesus, who He is, His sinless life, uh, the deity of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, the resurrection, salvation uh, uh, by grace through faith. All these things are, are absolutes. They are truths that... If, if we begin to distort those, bend, move away from those things, then as a church, we will, we will get off center of the core of the mission as to, to why the church exists in the first place. Yet also within the church, there are some areas where uh, there's room for disagreement. There's room for preferences. Uh, for example, a music style. Some people like a very high church format of music. Some like more southern gospel and you like a little twang in your, in your worship. Some like more modern worship. Uh, some like very slow songs. Some like dr- drum-driven song. And, and music style is an area where there's room for different preferences. Uh, a dress. Some like to, to wear suits and ties. Some, some like to, to wear a button-up shirt and jeans or something like that. Uh, uh, people ask me sometimes, okay, Lash, what's the dress code at Murphy Road. Well, the dress code is that you wear clothes, okay? We think it's very important that you come clothed to church, right? Now, we, we also ask that you just use common sense, all right? I mean, there's a certain, um, you know, guys, don't wear your Speedo to church, okay? That's just not appropriate. It's not modest, okay? So, so use some common sense and dress in a way that, that's appropriate. But there's room for, for diversity on this, uh, People have different views of the end times. Some are premillennial, some are amillennial, some are postmillennial, some are panmillennial, meaning that it'll all pan out the way that God wants it to pan out in the end. You know, uh, they have different views, and there's room for discrepancy there. Uh, uh, some are more reformed in their theology, some are more evangelical in their theology, and and there's there's room for for uh, differences there. But here's what happens over time: as you mature in your faith, as you become a stronger Christian you begin developing a circle of theology. And that circle of theology that you kind of build around you, it's not a bad thing because it becomes your filter. When you hear things that don't seem right or don't line up with what you understand from Scripture, that, that filter kind of helps you sort through 
all this different stuff that we hear and we expose ourselves to. But it's easy for that circle that we build around us, instead of being a healthy filter, it turns into a wall. And when it turns into a wall, what it becomes is is it becomes something that isolates us from other believers so that if, if there are other believers out there that believe anything differently than I believe, even on residual areas of doctrine, I will have nothing to do with them because I'm, I'm built in to my wall. And sometimes that wall can cause us, uh, instead of being willing to work with other believers and see those areas of agreement, sometimes that wall can, can isolate us and wall us off from things uh, that, that God would really like for us to experience. So in, in most disagreements, we ignore 90% of the things on which we agree. And instead, we distort the 10% of things on which we disagree. And so the passage begins right away with be in agreement with one another. And I want to encourage you, get your camouflage on, get the hunting dogs out, and go hunting for those areas where you agree. Because I think you'll find if you search for that common ground, most of the time we have a lot more in common than we do uh, against one another. Now, secondly... Prideful people will drag you down. Look at verse 16 again. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. I said this a few weeks ago. I'll I'll say it again. Pride is to relationships as cancer is to the body. Pride destroys. It rots relationships from the inside out. And most arguments never really try to solve the problem. Instead, here's what happens when we get in a disagreement with somebody else. Quickly, we begin to take position. Okay, this is my position, and this is your position. And once we take position, we start building walls around us. Once we take position, we become emotional, we become prideful, And instead of trying to solve the problem, instead of really looking at where are the areas where we agree, what what is the healthy solution, we dig our heels in, we get stubborn, we become prideful, and we're like, I'm right, you're wrong, and I will destroy you, you know? pride, Pride will drag you down. And so the passage says, don't be proud, but instead associate with the humble. And so here's... Here's the third principle to dealing with disagreements. Choose your friends wisely. Over time, you begin to reflect the people that you hang out with. And so the scriptures encourage us here to associate with the humble. Prideful people tend to run in packs. I think that's because it's easier for folks to take on one barking dog than it is to take on ten barking dogs. So prideful people will often recruit you to their position And they'll do so subtly, not because they're your friend, but because they want to use you for their own gain. Now, I think we need to realize this about humility. Humble people are not weak people. In fact, a person who is able to adorn themselves in humility is an incredibly strong person. Humble people understand a basic reality of life that I am not God. Now, that sounds so simple. Of course, I'm not God. But if you really look at how uh, individuals function, you'll find a lot of people live life as if they are God. 
In fact, there's a lot of major world religions that teach that either you can become God yourself or that the goal of life is to become part of the God force. But in Christianity, at the basic at the basic beginning step of Christianity, that proclamation that Jesus is Lord, we are admitting, I am not Lord. I am not God. A humble person realizes that I need to both receive and extend forgiveness. A humble person understands, I have said things I shouldn't have said. I have done things that I shouldn't have done. I need forgiveness from people. And at the same time, I need to be willing to extend forgiveness to others. A humble person realizes that there's a lot of things in life over which God has not given me authority. A humble person realizes, okay, this is my family. This is my spouse. I'm going to love my spouse. I'm not going to love somebody else's spouse. This is my family. I'm going to try to raise my children. I can't raise everybody else's children. A humble person realizes these are the areas of responsibility to which God has called me and God has called other people to other areas of responsibility. And I have to trust that God knows what he's doing. A humble person is a free person because a humble person is free to live life in faith. Living your life in faith is such a liberating reality. So many of us are trapped into this thought process that if I can't control it, if I can't understand it, if I can't prove it, then it's not true. I will not embrace it. But whenever we begin to live our life in faith and understand I'm not God, I can trust God, He's good, He's loving, He's gracious, and I place my faith in Him, it is incredibly liberating because, yes, there are many injustices in this world and there are things that I cannot do anything about, but I can continue to trust my God to be in control. A humble person realizes I am strong, Because I have forgiveness for my past, purpose in my future, and hope for tomorrow. A humble person is not a weak person. A humble person is a strong person. The passage says associate with people who are humble. Fourth, do not overestimate yourself. The passage says do not be wise in your own estimation. In 2015, we all think we are experts in everything. And the reason is, is that we have a friend named Google. We can Google anything, you know, and we can become an instant expert on all sorts of things. Now, I'm not talking bad about Google. I'm thankful for technology. But if you think about it, uh, you can find as much information in a Google search as we used to find like in a week in the library. And so because of this, we're constantly taking in massive amounts of information. And our minds are filled with all sorts of data and and things that may have been black and white now, they become gray. and, And we just know so much because if we have any questions, the first thing many of us do is we go and, and we Google it. So, so I mean, I Google a lot of stuff. The other day, my television broke. I don't know anything about fixing televisions. So I Googled it. And I found a solution. I did surgery on my television. And I fixed it. That's right. I fixed that puppy. The other day, I like to run. And uh, back in October, uh, I hurt my foot. 
Well, I didn't go to the doctor for like three months because I have Google, you know. I don't need a doctor. I've got Google. And so I did my symptoms and treated it. And finally, I broke down and went to the doctor. And guess what? I learned something, you know. I mean, they actually knew more than Google knew. It was, it was a fascinating experience. So, so, so here's, here's my deal with this, okay. The Bible says, don't overestimate yourself. And we live in a generation in which we all stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Okay? We all think we know everything there is to know about everything, and many times we think that things which are oceans are actually ponds, and in reality they're oceans. And it's really easy to overestimate ourselves. It's easy to have a lot of information today, but it's very difficult to filter that down into wisdom. And many of us know a lot of stuff, but what are you really doing with that stuff? Are you able to take all the information that you know and filter it into wisdom so that it really benefits rather than hinders. Number five, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Most people live with a Don Corleone, good father, sense of justice. And this is how we approach uh, relationships. If someone is good to me, then I'll be good to them. But if, and God forbid that this should ever happen, but if someone is bad to me, then it will end very badly for them. Thank you, thank you. And now I'll do my Mickey Mouse. Hello, everybody. All right. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. The Bible teaches us, though, that instead of repaying evil with evil, we should repay evil with good. Now, that is counterintuitive. Somebody did me wrong. I don't want to repay it with good. For you to get to that point, you're going to have to have a faith that God loves you, that God is in control. You're also going to have to have a faith that God has an out-of-control love for other people. And this is what's really hard. You're going to have to come to the belief that God loves other people as much as he loves you. And so when someone has done you wrong, instead of resorting to evil yourself, you're able to respond to them with graciousness and goodness. Number six, treat everyone with respect. Verse 17 says, try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on honor. It was entitled, The Missing Ingredient. And we talked about how in many marriages, in many families, uh, even in society as a whole, one of the missing ingredients is honor, that we've quit treating people with respect and dignity. We've quit using honor in our words and our attitudes, our reactions. Do you know that the number 10 cause of household fires is barbecuing? That's right. Bubba decides that he needs a steak. And so Bubba, being a barbecue purist, will not use propane, even though propane is a clean burning fuel. Uh, instead, he uses charcoal. Now Bubba realizes that he's pressed for time because he has things to do. <clears throat> and so he does not have all night to wait for the charcoal coals. And so he takes out the lighter fluid and he pours an abundance of lighter fluid on the charcoal. And then he lights the charcoal. 
The next thing you know, our friend Bubba is rolling around the yard trying to put the fire out that is on him. And then the Allstate man is on the way because the house also catch fires, catches fire and burns down. My point being, whenever you treat others with disrespect, it is like throwing lighter fluid on an open flame. It catches you on fire. It catches the house on fire. All sorts of things begin to be destroyed whenever you begin treating other people with disrespect and talking to them in ways that are less than honorable. Now, disrespect comes in so many, so many different forms. It comes in cynicism. It comes in sarcasm. You say, that's my sense of humor. You might want to think about it. It comes in rolling the eyes, body language, being dismissive, having that arrogant, prideful spirit. And disrespect will take those small fires, things that should not become big deals. It will take those small fires and it will turn them into raging infernos. And so the scriptures tell us to, to treat everyone with honor, to handle ourselves in a respectful, honorable way. Number seven, do your part to live at peace. Here's what the Bible says in verse 18. Look at with me. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Now, four parts to the verse here. The first part, if possible. Okay? There may be some situations where it's not possible to live at peace. You're walking down the street, and suddenly uh, three hoodlums attack you, and they are beating you senseless. That is probably not the moment to say, hey, guys, I just want to live at peace with, you know, okay, fight back at that point, okay? It's all right. But if possible, on your part, so you doing whatever you can, live at peace, that's the third part, and then the fourth part, with everyone. And that's the hardest part of the whole verse. I've got to try to live at peace with everyone. Do you know my neighbors? I'm supposed to try to live at peace with them? Now, we have to come to grips with the fact that we cannot control what other people think. Uh, we can't control what other people say. We really can't control how they act. But with the Holy Spirit's help, I can control how I think. I can control how I act. I can control what I say. You can't control the people around you. You can't make people be wise. You can't make people be kind or do the right thing. But you can control, through the Holy Spirit's help, how you react. And you can make a decision that as much as it is on me, if possible, I'm going to try to live at peace with everyone around me. Life has enough problems in and of itself that you really don't have to go around picking fights. Uh, you'll have plenty of problems to deal with. You won't get lonely when it comes to problems. Life has plenty of problems to throw at you. We don't have to run around picking fights with other people. Number eight, let God be God. Verse 19 says, Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So the Bible says, okay, uh, don't go around trying to not just get even but get ahead. I'm going to avenge myself. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to tear them down. Instead, leave room for, for God to be God. 
And then the scriptures remind us of something. God is the author and he's the finisher. God can extend grace to us. He can also choose to extend wrath to us. God can forgive and God can also discipline. And so he reminds us that in the injustices of this world, that there is a day where Jesus will come again and the injustices will be set right and the shalom of creation will be restored. And he also reminds us that God is more than capable of intervening into the scene and extending his will upon his creation. Now, I'm not an alarmist kind of preacher. If, if you've heard me preach very much at all, you know that I, I'm not one to say, hey, you missed two weeks last month. God's got a bucket of lightning bolts, and you're about to become a crispy critter, okay? I, I don't, I don't kind of go, hey, look out, man. God's going to strike you. I don't, I don't do a lot of that, but I have seen this, and, and now it's come to a point where I've seen it uh, many times. I've seen people who start uh, acting in a harmful way towards the church or the work of God. I've seen people that start acting in a very sinful way towards fellow Christians. And I've seen the hand of God just take care of it. And, and honestly, it's terrifying. It sends chills up my spine because I've seen it happen uh, on, on several occasions to the point where it's like, okay, this is not a coincidence. God's taking care of God's work. And we need to be mindful that God can be God, that God can stand up for himself and leave room in your reactions for God to take care of himself. Number nine, kill him with kindness. Kill him with kindness. Verse 20 says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Now, this goes back to the early verse. It says, do not repay evil with evil. Instead, it says, repay evil with, with kindness. So here's somebody that's your enemy, and you find them hungry, and so you feed them. And here's somebody that's your enemy that's thirsty, and, and you're giving them drink. And it says, in so doing, you're heaping fiery coals on their head because that enemy of yours thought that you would react in a combative way. They thought you hated them. They thought you wanted their destruction. But instead, when you found them in need, instead of praying for and acting in accord with their destruction, you acted in accord with their well-being. You gave them a drink of water. You gave them food. You treated them kindly. And so it becomes like heaping coals on their head where they're like, oh, I can't believe uh, that, that I felt this way. I can't believe that, that I did that, that I treated this, this person in, in this way. Now, when Jesus said, do not judge, lest ye be judged, he didn't mean that, there is a, uh, uh, that, that things are all morally neutral. He didn't mean that there is no such thing as right or wrong. In fact, that's one of those passages that's really, it's taken out of context a lot, and it's used a lot in situations where it's really not, not what the passage was teaching. Uh, yeah, I just stole your identity and robbed you of all your money, but hey, don't judge me. <laughs> okay, you know, don't judge, let, let you be judged kind of thing. Uh, and we, we tend to, people tend to throw that verse out in a sense, uh, uh, don't say that what I'm doing is wrong because you're not supposed to judge me. And the Bible doesn't say that, that, that there's no such thing as right or wrong. In fact, it identifies a lot of things that are right and a lot of things that, that are right and wrong. Uh, but the Christian's job is not to be a referee. 
The job of a Christian is not to put on a black and white shirt and get your whistle out and go around, and every time you see a foul, you blow the whistle and you say, okay, 15 yards on this person, okay, technical foul, okay, you're out of the game. That's not the Christian's job. The Christian's job is to point people towards God. In fact, we need to communicate more about the nature and goodness and grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to communicate more about God and draw people to our God. And then it's the Holy Spirit's job to work on hearts. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to lead people to repentance. It's our job to try to be Christ-like in our own actions and to lead people towards our Heavenly Father and then trust God to do His part to work on people's hearts. As believers, we also need to come to the realization that lost people are going to act like lost people. People that are not Christians, they're they're not going to act like Christians. I mean, we live in a Romans 1 world. If you've never read Romans 1, go back and read it again. Uh, uh, As people move away from the light of God, they go further and further and further into darkness until uh, the the, the truth is suppressed and wrong becomes right and right becomes wrong and people actually sit and applaud as people plunge themselves into darkness away from God's ways. Lost people are going to act like lost people. But aren't you glad, though, that as outrageous as some of the darkness of this world is, God has overcome the darkness with an outrageous love and a brilliant light. Aren't you glad that the the most fundamental passage in Scripture begins with, because God loved, He sent His Son, so that whoever believes uh, may live eternally with Him and, and not perish. Sinful people need Christians who will love them enough to lead them to God, to show them Christ-likeness, to lead them to a God who can bring forgiveness to their past and joy to their present, and hope for their future. We're more than referees. We're to go out and be like Christ. We're to lead people to the Christ that we love. Number 10, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And really this verse right here, verse 21, is the foundation upon which the entire section that we've gone through today is built. There's a lot of things in this life that are evil. And the passage says, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And I just want to encourage you to keep doing the right thing. You keep being light, shining into the darkness. You keep being salt in the midst of a world that has lost its saltiness. You keep being that example of what a godly marriage looks like. You keep being that example of what it looks like to raise your kids uh, in the way of the Lord. Let's keep being an example of what it looks like to be a church that desires to authentically be like Christ and open the Word of God and let the Word of God uh, take root in our hearts. And and let's keep being that example. Uh, You go out and you be like Christ wherever you are, in the grocery store, at the Little League game, at the PTA meeting, at the city council meeting, wherever you are, you go out and you try to be like Christ. Uh, Try to lead people to your God. Talk more about your God and less about yourself. 
Hold on to truth. Don't minimize the fact that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. But show faith in the challenges of life. You know, there's going to be some moments in life where things are going to get hard. There's going to be moments where you lose your job. There's going to be moments where somebody close to you passes away. There's going to be moments when you go through a financial crisis, whenever your child doesn't behave in the way that you want them, and you're going to find yourself in one of those valleys of life. And in those valleys of life, you hang on to God. You model faith. You show what it looks like to be a a Job-like person that says, even though he slays me, yet will I trust him, and I'm going to continue to believe that I am not God, but there is a God who is good who is holy, who is loving, who loves me so much that even while I was yet a sinner, he sent his son to live a life that I could never live. He died on the cross for my sins. He overcame death so that in my belief in him, I might not have to live as a captive to my sins, but I can be found in him and declared righteous because of his righteousness. And I encourage you to live your life as someone who is in love with your Savior. To live your life as a follower of Christ, to be salt and light in this world, to be living water to people who are struggling in the deserts of this world. Be like Christ. Overcome evil with good. Have a Christ-like spirit. Let the Holy Spirit go to work on those areas where you still need improvement. I don't expect you to be perfect. The only one that's perfect is Jesus. But we gather here each Sunday and we open the Word of God and in the process the Spirit begins showing us areas of our life where we need to change. So do what is right in the eyes of God and trust God to be God. Would you stand with me please as we come to a time of commitment? Paul and the musicians are going to come right now. and If today's the day where you need to make a decision to be a Christian for whatever reason... Uh, you've never made that decision in your life, but the Holy Spirit's been working on you and you've come to that point where you're like, I need to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to come see me. I'd love to talk to you about that. If for whatever reason uh, you can't find me or can't talk to me, find somebody that you know in your life that's a godly person and say, hey, um, the Lord's leading me to to believe in him. I, I want to become a Christian today. Church, I, I pray that we, we come to worship with an understanding that we desire to encounter God. And I pray that as we open the scriptures each week, that we also open our hearts. I know it's real easy to push up against scripture and say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to live life the way that I want to live it. But I encourage you to open your hearts to what God has said. Maybe there's some areas where we've been hanging on to the past. There's areas where we have been hanging on to pride. And as you've seen truth from God's word today, it's shown you there's some changes that need to take place. There's some yielding that needs to occur. Perhaps we're still trusting in ourselves to an inordinate degree. And God is calling us to place our trust in Him. Perhaps we've been hanging on to things which are unrighteous. And there's areas of our life where we've been running from God. 
Perhaps we've had the clenched fist of anger. We've been hanging on to those areas because we're mad about something. And today as we've looked at these scriptures, we realize that we need to open the fist. Open our hands. Perhaps we need to extend our hands in forgiveness. Perhaps we need to extend our hands to God. Because God desires to do a good and perfect work in your life. And He loves you too much to just let you stay the same. He wants to grow you and mature you. And He wants to use you in ways that only He can for His glory. And so our greatest response to worship is that we change. We change to be more like Christ. We change to be more Christ-like. And we open our minds and our hearts to embrace His truth and abandon the foolishness of our earthly wisdom. Father, we come to You and we sing praises to You because You are Lord. In Jesus' name.